There was an article in the Washington Post a number of years ago. It began with these words. Perhaps you remember this. It says, the king, the king folds her own laundry. Chauffeurs herself around Washington in a 1992 Honda and answers her own phone. She answers her boss's phone, too. The article was about Pejeline Bartel. She's secretary to the Ghanaian embassy in Washington for 30 years. She came from a small village in Ghana, about uh, 7,000, small city, about 7,000 people in the town. When the 90-year-old king of that town died, the elders did what they've always done. It's a ritual to to determine the next king. They prayed, and they poured schnapps on the ground, Well, they read the name of the king's 25 relatives. When steam rose from the schnapps on the ground, that name that they were reading at the moment would be the new king. And that's exactly what happened when they read her name. So now, Pejeline is a king. Yes, a king, not a queen. When she pointed out to the elders that she is a woman, they replied by saying the office of king is the post that was open. So when she goes back to Ghana, she has a driver and a chef and an eight-bedroom palace, though she says it does need repairs. She has power to resolve disputes, appoint elders, and manages more than a 1,000 acres of family-owned land. I'm a big-time king, you know, she told the reporter. When she returned for her coronation, they carried her through the streets. She even wore a heavy gold crown. Paul Swartzman, the reporter, wrote, In the humdrum of ordinary life, People periodically yearn for something unexpected, some kind of a gilded escape, delivered perhaps by an unanticipated inheritance or a winning lottery ticket. Pejeline got the unexpected. Last Sunday, we partied. You look around, you still see the evidence. Resurrection Sunday, all about life, And the struggle that we have, and still do, is that it is expected. Every year, we celebrate the resurrection. We always know the end of the story. We always know what is coming. And so, the challenge for us is to keep it fresh. To stay in a place where what is expected still surprises and thrills, and energizes. According to Paul, the resurrection is the defining truth of the Christian faith. He told the believers in Corinth, if the resurrection doesn't happen, then we are really to be pitied, more than all people. In other words, everything we believe as followers of Jesus Christ is pinned on the truth of the resurrection. If it did not happen, then what's the point? And so, there has been something rattling around in my head this week. Of course, as I get older, more things rattle around in my head. And there's more room for them to rattle around. But nonetheless, it was this question. Am I living as if the resurrection really did happen? Are you living as if the resurrection really did happen. That, that glorious event that we celebrated last Sunday. Are, have you lived this past week as if it really did happen? What difference does it make 
what does it look like for us as individuals and for us as a, as a group, this small body assembled at Applewood Community Church, what does it look like to live as if the resurrection really is the truth? You know, I read the story of that dear Ghanaian woman, and, and I think to myself, wow, that's really something. An ordinary woman becomes a king just like that. And then I began to think about what the scripture teaches us. It's like, wait a minute. Ganya? (laughs) Are you kidding? The apostle Paul wrote to ordinary people at Ephesus. And he wrote to us. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. I love that. Not just some, not just a few. With every spiritual blessing in Christ. And then a little further down that same text, he writes that God adopted us as his children through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has freely given us in the one he loves. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us. That's what we celebrated last Sunday. That's what we celebrate every Sunday. And that should never get old. It should never just be, oh yeah, the truth of the resurrection. Do you hear the language Paul uses there? The riches of God's grace. It's a lot lavished upon us, not just sprinkled, you know, to you some, to you another, lavished upon us, blessed with every spiritual blessing in Christ. My friends, that is royalty language. And that happens because the resurrection happened. It is true. It assures us. Paul really believed all of this. And it helps us understand better why he told those Corinthian believers, if the resurrection doesn't happen, then it's just a fairy tale. Give it up. It's not worth it. Christian Smith, author of a book titled Soul Searching, summarizes perceptions about God that are, he feels are prevalent in the church and in contemporary culture here in, in America. He found that many evangelicals believe in what he could best describe as, as moral therapeutic deism. Moral implies that God wants us to be good. And he rewards the good and he withholds from those who are naughty. Therapeutic means that God wants us to be happy. Deism, of course, means that God is distant, that he's not involved in our daily lives. God may get involved occasionally, but on the whole, God functions like an idea, not a personal being actively present in our world. And according to Smith, he says... This is the version of God that's prevalent in our culture and in our churches. Often without realizing it, every culture quietly molds and shapes our views of God. It says, but we can't grow in our relationship with God when we insist on relating to him as we think he should be. Smith suggests that it's the same way in our human relationships. If, if I were to demand that you meet my needs and conform to my assumptions about you, you would probably feel cheapened and manipulated. He says, that's why our surrender to God as he is, as revealed in Scripture, is so important. Otherwise, we simply have a God of our own imaginations. I think it's true 
not only of our culture today, but I think it's true of, of every culture and every age. What, what could the enemy of God want more than for God's reputation, for God's glory to be, to be sullied through the lives of his people because they are not living according to the truth, because they are not even taking the truth into their lives and allowing the Spirit of God, begging the Spirit of God to transform them with that truth. We've asked the question before, haven't we? What kind of a God suffers on behalf of sinful people in order to save them from destruction and bring them into an eternal relationship of love and satisfaction? That's just nutty. That's our God. That's what He does. That's what kind of God He is, an amazing God. And I, I think that it's this truth that filled Paul's heart and mind when he started off in that letter to the Ephesians. It overflows with just awe at what God has done. His description of who God is and his actions towards those who had rejected him. But, I find this so interesting. He's not satisfied for them to just know the facts. To understand, theologically speaking, we might, we might say, what God has done for them in Christ. It's not enough for them to, to know in their heads this amazing truth. Paul's desire is that, that it, it gets into their hearts. And he wanted some very specific truths about what God has done for them to, to reach their hearts. And so I was praying, as I always do, about the next series, Lord, where do we go from here? And, uh, and I, I feel like just a portion of Ephesians chapter 1 is the text to which he led me that we'll spend the next uh, few weeks looking at a little bit more closely. But I, but I have to confess this to you. I, I felt great conviction as I was reading it this week. I've read this text a zillion times. Ephesians 1 and 2 are, are probably two of my, my favorites. I, I just love these chapters. But it, it has never occurred to me that the prayers that Paul prays for the Ephesian believers are prayers that that I should not only be praying for myself, but I should be praying those for you. For you as, as God's people. There are, there are three very specific things that Paul prays in regard to the Ephesians. And, and he tells them, he says, this is, this is what I pray. We're going to get to them in just a minute. Why, why these three things? I, I'm not really sure why he chooses these three, but... But I think as we begin to go through them in the next few weeks together, they'll perhaps make a little bit more sense in light of the culture in which we live, not unlike the culture in which the Ephesians, believers, found themselves living, a very, a very pagan culture. And I think that, for me, is, is when the light went on. Perhaps you've noticed that, that we are living in a culture where God is really not a popular topic. Uh, we're certainly living in a culture where the, the church is, is really no longer a, 
a, a sought-after or a respected voice in, in the culture. According to, to Paul Fries and Christopher Bader, they're the authors of a book titled America's Four Gods. They say that among Americans who say that they believe in God, there are four major categories of belief or, or understanding of God. They, they talk, first of all, about the authoritative God. The authoritative God is very involved in the world to help people and does judge evildoers in this life. But even so, he is loving and he is seen as a father figure. Their research shows that 31% of the Americans who believe in God have this understanding. Second is a benevolent God. The benevolent God is very involved in this world to help people, but he does not feel anger toward evildoers and he does not judge anyone. 24% of Americans who believe in God have this understanding. Third is the critical God. Critical God does not involve himself in the affairs of this world or its people, but he does take careful note of how people live and will judge them in the afterlife, holding them to account for evils done. 16% Americans feel this way. Fourth, it's what they call the distant God. The distant God is a more cosmic force or a higher power than a person. This God created everything but is no longer engaged with the world and does not judge its inhabitants. You know, it may be that, that we live in an age in our culture where, where clarity about the character of God is, uh, is lacking, perhaps more than ever before. And I, and I guess that it might be in part because, quite frankly, I think a lot of folks who claim to know God don't really know God. They don't really know him in terms of who he's revealed himself to be in Scripture. And I think that's, that's what Paul is, is driving at in this text when he says, here is what I am praying for you. These are some things that, that are really important for you to know as the people of God. So, so I'm here to tell you that I'm going to start praying these things for you. I hope you're okay with that. I, mean, I don't know what you're going to do if you're not okay with that. But, you know, I'm, I'm going to include myself in these prayers as well. But, but these, are, these are significant. They really, really are. So I want them to become a regular part of, of my prayer. So we're going we're gonna to read just a, a chunk from Ephesians chapter 1. I'm sure that for many of you these will be familiar words. Um, it'll be our text for the next few weeks. Paul starts the letter to the Ephesians with those glorious, amazing statements about God and His grace and what He has done for us in Christ and all those spiritual blessings and how we've been included because we've heard and believed the gospel. And just before we get to our text this morning, he says these words, Having believed, you were marked in Him with a seal the promised Holy Spirit who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. Those who belong to God are marked by God and have been given a deposit, his spirit living in them, guaranteeing their inheritance in glory. Let's stand, and we'll continue reading right after those statements.
Here we go from Ephesians 1. For this reason, ever since I heard about your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all his people, I have not stopped giving thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in his people, and his incomparably great power for us who believe. That power is the same as the mighty strength he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every name that can be invoked, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. And God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. My brothers and sisters, this is the word of the Lord. Amen. Go ahead and be seated. So if you're listening closely, you, uh, you heard some statements that Paul made, four requests in particular. I want us to look closely at three. The first one being sort of, a, of an umbrella statement, if I can say it that way. He keeps asking God to give the Ephesian believers a spirit or the spirit of wisdom so that they may know God better. That is the most important desire of the believer's heart. That they may know God better. That's where it all starts. Nothing is more important in life than we desire to know God better. Are you satisfied with your knowledge of God? Is there more that you need to know? Is there more truth about God that needs to impact and shape and mold your life? Oh, I know that's true for me. That we may know God better. And then he gets specific about some things that he wants the Ephesians to know specifically about God. I want you to know God better, Paul says. And I keep asking God, I keep asking and asking and asking to give you the spirit of knowing him better. And then there are three specific truths that he wants them to know about God. Rachel, can we put those up? The first one, the hope to which he has called you. The riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints and his incomparably great power for us who believe. Now, there's an interesting phrase that Paul uses here. He says, I pray that the, that the eyes of your heart 
may be enlightened in order that you might know these three specific things. Know them well. Know them completely. Know them so that they impact your life on a daily basis. I pray that the eyes of your heart will be enlightened. So I want you to turn to your neighbor and ask them, what in the world are the eyes of your heart? See what your neighbor says. What are the eyes of your heart? Okay, all you theologians, what'd you come up with? (laughs) The eyes of your heart. It's a peculiar phrase. Open the eyes of my heart, Lord. What in the world are we singing when we sing that? What are the eyes of your heart? What do you think? What you see God's truth with. Okay, okay, good, good, good. What else? Lee? Yes, 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 exactly. You see where Paul's going with this? It's the idea of these truths have got to get from here to here. Metaphorically speaking, the heart is the center of who we are in the Hebrew mindset. You know, I, I, I say to my wife, I love you with all my heart. What does that mean? Am I really loving her with that physical heart that's beating in my chest? No. The heart, the heart for the Hebrew is the, is the seat of, of thought and, and moral judgment. It's the place of feelings. Paul is asking God to enlighten the place in the life of a believer that dictates and guides their living, their decision-making, their thinking, their actions. We think of that as the brain. For the Hebrew, it's the heart. You know, if the heart is good, things are good. The heart is bad, woe to you. The heart is the center of the person. It is that place where deep feelings come from where decision-making determines the actions that a person takes. Paul is not satisfied, and and Paul, the intellect, Paul is not satisfied that they just know the truth. There are a lot of things that we know that we don't necessarily pay attention to. We know what the speed limit is. We know when our taxes are due. We know when our anniversary is. Men, you know when your anniversary... Yeah, okay. It's one thing to know intellectually the facts. It's another thing as as Catherine's taken us down that path of there's an intimacy. There There is something inside of us that is connecting with the truth that very much impacts the way we think and the way that we act. For the Ephesians, Paul is... Very interested and prays continually that God will give to the Ephesian believers a greater understanding of the first one, the hope. The hope to which he has called you. Last Sunday we talked about hope. Resurrection is all about hope. It's all about new life. We're going we're gonna to look more closely at that idea of hope that God has, has given to us, what does it mean to us on a, 
on a daily basis. I read the most interesting uh, story this week. Harvard psychologist, I'd, I'd never heard this name, researcher Daniel Gilbert, he, uh, he wrote a book called Stumbling on Happiness. And he opens the book with what he calls the sentence. The sentence begins with these eight words. The human is the only animal that... And then he argues that every professor, every teacher ought to finish that sentence. And the way that he finishes that sentence is this way. It's insightful. He says the human being is the only animal that thinks about the future. Now, my wife probably wouldn't agree with that because she's pretty sure that our dog just lays around thinking all day about the walk that he's going to get with her when he gets home. So with the exception of my dog, we are the only animals that think about the future. He says... Humans think about the future in a way that no other animal can or does or ever has. Hope, my friends, plays a huge part in how we think about the future. Paul wants the believers in Ephesus and the believers at Applewood to know the hope to which God has called them. And it's not just about future as in heaven. It's to know hope for the future as in tomorrow, as in this afternoon, as in what happens in the next hour. Hope is a theme that carries us through life. We'll we'll look at that more closely in weeks to come. Second thing that he prays again and again, he wants them to know the riches of God's glorious inheritance in the saints very interesting phrase. And, and, and the language structure makes it kind of peculiar in the sense that, that riches from God that flow to the saints, which certainly is in keeping with those first verses in Ephesians 1. He's, he's blessed us with every spiritual blessing in Christ. There's also that idea that, that riches come as a result of being in the party of the saints, being a member of the saints, there, there are riches that we glean from our place and our participation in the body of Christ. I love that. It's my bias, what can I say? Um, <clears throat> one author, uh, Peter Kreeft, The Heart's Deepest Longing, he says, he says suppose that, you, you, that God took you on a crystal ball trip into your future. And you saw with certainty that despite everything, your sin, your smallness, your stupidity, you, had, you could have for free, free for the asking, your, your whole crazy heart's deepest desire, heaven and eternal joy. He says, would you not return to the earth fearless and singing? What can earth do to you if you are guaranteed heaven? glorious inheritance of the saints tied closely to the theme of hope. He says to fear the worst earthly loss would be like a millionaire fearing the loss of a penny. No, he says, fearing a scratch on one of his pennies. And the third thing that Paul wants the Ephesians to know, to know to the core of their being, is the incomparable 
great power for those who believe. That's a great phrase that, uh, that the English translators struggle with. Incomparably great. It means ginormous. It means out of this world. It means like nothing you can imagine. It literally speaks to something that is thrown over into another realm. That's a more literal rendition of the, the Greek phrasing that's there. We might say it's, it's otherworldly. No kidding. Paul is wanting the Ephesians and us to know that the power that God has given us to live as his people is not like anything that they have ever known before. And it is there. And it is available. And it is generated by the Spirit of God in their lives. And then in case they have any question, he ends with those words that we read earlier. That power that he's talking about is the same as the mighty strength he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms. I love this. And then he just goes on and on. Far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every name that can be invoked, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. And God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. It's almost like Paul is saying, you know, did I, did I forget anything? Any questions here, folks? Pretty much covers it. And, of course, what is implied? And this is the hard part. No excuses. No excuses. Paul records a power of this nature, and the implication is there are no excuses for not living in this power to the glory of God. So that's where we're going to go for a few weeks together. Buckle your seatbelts. It's going to be fun. Fun and... uh, Fun and challenging. Praise be to God for his word. and The privilege, the blessing that we have of uh, having it clearly in our language. One of the things that, that we have been doing, if you've been with us over the last few months, is, is asking someone in the church family to be uh, what I sort of think of as our featured testimony on a communion Sunday morning. Speaking to the grace and the power of God in their lives. And uh, so my dear friend Craig Nelson, He's going to come this morning, and he's going to share a bit of his journey and uh, grace in his life. I'm going to leave it. You know, I got chipped on testimony. Amen. Guy's a pretty brave guy to have me come up. Little did he know the mess that he was getting into. You probably need to put up there the views expressed in Craig's testimony are not necessarily those of Applewood Community Church. <laughs> Uh, I'm going to put my testimony in two parts. The first one is called Surrender, or What the Heck is That? There's a book called Halftimers, and I'm kind of thinking that's, I know I'm past halftime, but that's where I'm going to go. In it, he puts, Surrender, could there be a more un-American word? I mean, really, what self-respecting, self-made person considers surrendering, quitting, capitulating. I sure didn't. So, looking back, as he asked me to do this, I have a hard time remembering what I did last week, thinking about 30 or 40 years ago. Is wow. Well, anyway, I grew up in Indiana in a loving home. I had mom and dad. 
I guess if I felt God's love, we really didn't go to church too much, but I probably felt it through their love for me. I remember one Baptist church we tried. I was in Sunday school. She said, if you want to go to heaven, you have to believe in Jesus. If you don't, you're going to hell. Well, heaven sounded better than hell to me. (laughs) And, you know, we didn't go very often. We kind of did the Easter Sunday, Christmas Eve services over the years. And then... In high school, I started going to youth group. It was MYF was what it was called. I think I did it because my friends were going and I wanted to be with them, if I'm honest. Really, if I talk about growing up, it was about sports. I played basketball, football, baseball, and then tennis. And winning was everything. There was no surrender in anything I did. Sorry to say, but it's true. I went to college, went to CSU. Got to say, I gave up on God during that time, and I gave up on myself. Met Bonnie. We got married in 1984. Long time ago. But just really, it seems like just yesterday, dear. Um, just quick, when we got married, we were a little naive. We thought, we'll have a little, my wife grew up Jewish, and I was a semi-believer, so we'll just have a little Jewish stuff going in the wedding and a little Christian stuff. Ah, it didn't work so good. We went to the rabbi, and he said, very first thing, here I am, a 23-year-old, naive, semi-believer, I'm going to say I was, when... Bonnie dies and she doesn't believe in Jesus and she goes to hell. How are you going to feel? Whoa. That was the end of the rabbi talk to me. I just shut down. So, but these are all seeds and it's going to weave all together, I hope, if I can do this right. Oh, so, um, married Bonnie and I had Mickey and Carly. I was uh, liking to play soccer, believe it or not, and another game to do. And Bonnie, I was getting ready in the closet on a Sunday morning, getting my uniform on. She goes, you know what? You're being selfish. And I'm like, really? I want to do something. This is the last thing I'm doing by myself. I get to play soccer. But she was right, and I knew it. And that afternoon, after a soccer game, I was helping somebody move, and I fell down the stairs and broke my ankle. So I didn't have an excuse to go play soccer anymore. So in years after that, at our small group, that was kind of like the gentle push down the stairs got us going to, <laughs> to, to church. Um... Anyway, we went to look out. We did a church search. I don't know. It was kind of hard. We said, we're going to go to... Vani actually said, we're going to church for the kids. How wrong that was. <laughs> we needed to be there. We found out Lookout, we found Lookout Mountain. 
And when we first started going, I was soaking it all in. Peter was the pastor up there, and I felt like I was the only one in the crowd. He was talking straight to me. We got connected in small groups, did deacon stuff, but there was a couple verses that were really tugging on my heart. James 2.17 Dear brothers and sisters, what's the use of saying you have faith and don't prove it by your actions? Faith that doesn't show itself by good deeds is no faith at all. It's dead and useless. Wow, is that me? You know, we didn't have altar calls at Lookout Mountain, but you closed your eyes and raised your hand if you want to accept the Lord. I did it every time he asked. Shouldn't I act different if that's what I'm professing with my lips? Shouldn't I be different? I wasn't different. I was raising my hand every time. Another one. If you forgive those who sin against you, your heavenly Father will forgive you. But if you refuse to forgive others, your heavenly Father will not forgive your sins. Whoa. That's pretty big stuff. This other one, which is really going to come back in my story, if you claim to be religious, this is James 1.26, and don't control your tongue. You're just fooling yourself. Your faith is useless. Wow. Pretty big stuff. What I didn't know why they were tugging so much at me at that time didn't happen for a few years later. Get to that. I've got some good, better stories. God moments. Ron Hagee, if anybody you know, he has a ministry called Never Give Up. He's a quadriplegic that, teach, that goes around and speaks at schools all over, youth facilities, jails, the whole works. I, we heard him speak one Sunday up there, and we didn't. I mean, he moved us in a big way, but I didn't know him. Sitting behind him at Lookout Mountain at church one Sunday a couple years later, and I don't think I've ever got spoke to by God before like this, but he said, Ron Hagee needs this much money. Really? That's a lot of money, Lord. Are you sure? Of course I'm sure. <laughs> so, after the service, I said, Bonnie, God told me to give a lot of money to Ron Hagee. And she said, go ahead. If God said it, you do it. So we did. But what I didn't know is later, I just handed him a check after church for his ministry, and he came up and said, how did you know how much money I was in debt for? And we wouldn't be able to go on any longer if you didn't give us that money. God knew. So, anyway. The next came five years later. We came to start coming to Applewood. Bonnie came home from Royal Family Kids Camp, all on fire, and said, hey, we're all going next year. So Carly, Mickey, and I said, oh, great. (laughs) So that's our vacation this summer? (laughs) Wow. So needless to say, I wasn't real convicted on going to camp that year. Every, people that know me know how much I like meetings. I could not wait to get out of the trainings. I could not wait to get on with my stuff. Anyway, 
They asked me to be Fisherman Craig, which I said I would love to be Fisherman Craig. So I went. There was a training on the Monday morning before the kids came. And I said, I'm not going. I can't stand one more meeting. I've had it. So I went down to the lake, got all the fishing poles ready, fished a little bit myself, came up at the end of the training. And I'm terrible with remembering names, but there was a man speaking, and he said, I've longed my whole life to have a forever family, and I never got it. I just sobbed and cried, and I knew Bonnie and I can give that person a forever home. We're still trying. It hasn't happened yet, but we're working on it. Um, then the summer of 2010 came. I'm gonna. Oops. Um, nice picture, right? Beautiful wife, beautiful kids, two dogs. What you don't see in that picture is a cat. Um, <laughs> and there's reason for that. No, um, this, I mean, everything looks good there. Um, great job, great wife, great kids. Everybody seen the movie Perfect Storm? Or Worst Storm, whatever you want to call it. There was something brewing in me that summer. Um, Talked about surrendering, not quitting. Part of that not quitting is a lot of anger. And um, we had some teenage issues going. We had a cat that was peeing all over our basement. Mickey was going to college again, which is never fun for us. If you, I just never like to say goodbye. So, you know, you think, oh, there's that picture. You can turn it off now. Everything's great. What you fear as a, uh, a dad, maybe a, of a teenager, is getting that call from the police. But the call wasn't about my daughter. I'm calling my mom and dad. Sorry, everybody. <laughs> Please bail me out of jail. That was me, August 9th, 2010. All happy and smiley. The next day, I'm in Jefferson County Prison. Sorry. Um, I, uh, we got into a big argument that night. Remember when I said you, you can't control your tongue? I didn't any way, anyhow, try to control my tongue that night with my wife or my daughter. My son, Mickey, was saying, calm down, Dad. Take the dogs for a walk. I don't want to go a lot more detail than that, but needless to say, I didn't. And Bonnie got scared, and she called the police. And 
pretty humiliating to be in your boxer shorts, a t-shirt, and be handcuffed and taken away by four police cars out in front of your house. But that's what I had. So, Amazing Grace. I love that song, but I never liked Saved the Wretch. I just never, I thought I was a pretty good guy. A wretch, really? Sitting in a jail cell at Jefferson County Prison, I felt like a wretch. You know, in my sin, you know, God doesn't prioritize sin, but we sure do. That's why I thought I was a pretty good guy. Pride's pretty slippery. Selfishness, anger. They finally showed up in a big way. But if that was the end of the story, it'd be pretty darn sad. But it's not. You know what God can do. Grace was amazing. The police and the courts don't give you any grace. I'd never been in trouble in my life. And my lawyer said, oh, you'll get off. You've not had anything happen. Nope. 36 weeks of domestic violence classes. And domestic violence, there's no like domestic violence one and two and three and four. You get domestic violence tag, you're done. In terms of foster care, kids night out of church, most people didn't know what was going on, why I wasn't here for a year doing what the thing I helped start with Mickey. Pretty sad. It's like, wow. But during the 36 weeks class, I started out, the instructor said, Craig, you don't need to be here. You only unplugged a phone. I can't believe you're doing this class. So as he says that, yeah, I shouldn't be here. These guys are terrible. I'm not. But four weeks later, I had to write, well, I didn't have to. He said to the group, before you can be done with your sentence, you have to write an apology letter to your victims. That's how they say it. My victims were my wife, my daughter, my son, and God. I, I sinned. So I wrote the letter. You should have heard the men in that group. I will never apologize to her or whoever, you know. No way. And it's, it's usually got some color meta, colorful metaphors attached to that. But the one thing I learned was anger had taken control of my life, and it had for a long time. And I did need to be in that class. And God worked on my heart. And I, thank goodness, changed. Um, the amazing part, just a side note, was almost every person in that room was in foster care but me. All ten guys. All ten guys had lost their kids to foster care. Can't help thinking there's a reason I'm here after a while. Not just for the anger part, but... When we went to camp, I had no compassion for the bio parents 
of foster kids. How can you do that to kids? After being with them for 36 weeks, had a new understanding. And when we got those foster, when we, anyway, I jumped the boat there a little bit. I got done. My sentence was removed. I remember the judge, he asked, Craig, why should I get rid of this and remove it from your record? I said, there's four kids that need, that Bonnie and I want to take care of. They, she goes, I can't think of any better reason to get rid of your sentence. And she removed it. It's stripped from my record. And a month later, we had four foster kids in our house. So, praise God. I, mean, I almost lost my wife, my family, my passion for kids. So, I was forced to surrender in a way. And I'm glad I did. What turned into the worst night of my life turned into a gigantic blessing. And um, I thank you for all the, some people you knew, knew here, I thank you for all the support I got that. My friends, I haven't told, forgive me. It's not that easy. Oh, how was your week? Oh, I was in jail on Monday. <laughs> so, sorry for not being more honest with all of you. Um... I think I'm just about done. Um, sorry. I got a lot more, but I should probably finish. Um, the, uh, <laughs> what's that? The cat's still alive. And, oh, the one thing I was going to say about when the four foster kids were with us, it was the hardest seven months of our lives. Bonnie and I were pushed and tested not only the kids, but Adams County. And it was a standing joke with Guy and I. Be ready for that call, Guy. I might be calling from Adams County Prison. But <laughs> praise be to God, I did not lose my cool one time in seven months with those kids. I could have easily done it with Adams County, but didn't. So that's my first part, surrender. My second part is I'm going to call it, let them see you. I don't want to keep living a selfish life. That's not what he's called us to do. Sorry, I had one more part. And what I found out about surrender, it takes way more strength and God's power to let it go than to spout my mouth off or to lash out. So surrender is the farthest thing from being wimpy as it, it can be. So Phil, I asked Phil to play a song um, in the worship team, and it's called Let Them See You. So my half-timer statement, surrender or no surrender, and now let them see you in me. So I hope I can prove, prove and show my actions and faith and instead of using my lip service, I want to lose it in my actions. So thank you all.